The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we are continuing in our series, uh, which is born out of my master's thesis on creation care, a biblical worldview. And the goal of this all is to ask us to rethink the way we think about the natural world and about God's creation. And um, so, Jonathan, can I get the title slide up there, my friend? Awesome, thank you. So it's all about trying to create and articulate a biblical worldview for Christian identity and participation in God's reconciliation of all things. Even though I wrote it, I still can never memorize the title. That says something. And so today we are going to do a deep dive um, into Jesus's work. So just to recap, uh, I showed you this fancy infographic yesterday, last week, about how I saw the natural world being talked about in Scripture. We talked about how God created the earth very good, and what he meant by very good was that it was in right relationship, that God, humanity, and all elements of the natural world existed well together. And then as we go through scripture, we see that human sin frustrates this relationship, and so God draws our focus down narrowly to the promised land and the people of Israel to show us and hopefully articulate a vision of what good relationship looks like on a small scale in one place with one people and how that might then expand out fully to the end of scripture where we see the new heavens and the new earth. And I asked for your forgiveness because last week I totally skipped over Jesus, which is not something you want your minister to do on a Sunday. So I would just like to say today it is going to be all about Jesus. So take them both together. And so today, we're going to wrestle with what Jesus does for our perception of the natural world, what Jesus does on the cross through his resurrection, something that we just celebrated in Easter time, how that impacts the natural world around us. Because I think the church does a really good job about talking about how Jesus saves us from our sin. But sometimes we forget to look beyond that. And so that was part of my research, trying to wrestle with how far does Jesus' death and resurrection go? How far does his work go? In order to do that, we have to wrestle with sin, wrestle with what exactly creation needs saving from, if anything at all. How has sin impacted the natural world? Because in order to understand how Jesus saves it, we have to know exactly why and how it is messed up. And so today I want to start us in the book of Romans, in Romans 8, 19 to 21, which Nella read for us first off. And so we first want to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean when he talks about creation? For this in Scripture is a bit of a convoluted term sometimes, and we can take it to mean a variety of different things. We can think as some commentators did reading this passage, that when Paul talks about creation, he's talking just about humans. That the focus on creation is us as a created work of God, and so we should only look narrowly then at who we are and the effects of sin on us. 
Other commentators throughout history have looked at it and said, well, perhaps it's looking at just the non-human elements of creation, and others yet still look at it as all-encompassing both humans and the non-human elements. Because it says that creation eagerly awaits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. And it's this wording that I would argue that Paul is talking about the non-human elements of creation, because this becomes an issue of free will, that creation is subjected to frustration, subjected to sin, not by its own doing. Because we know from the book of Genesis that the ones to whom God gave free will are the ones that messed it all up royally. And so as we ask that question, who is in bondage and why, we have to go back once again to the beginning. Because Paul does not create ideas on his own, but he draws from the richness of the biblical tradition. And so I want to take us back to Genesis, to Genesis 3.17, where this is after Adam and Eve have taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have been deceived by the serpent. They have engaged in that breaking of relationship between God, themselves, and all of creation. And this break is highlighted by these words of God. And he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. We see all the way back in Genesis that creation is cursed because of the actions of humanity. Creation suffers, is frustrated, is subjected, not by its own free will, as Paul says, but by human choice. The human choice to live outside of the will of God has inflicted this terrible curse upon creation. It shows us that human sin, that our own personal choices to live outside the will of God are so volatile that it affects everything outside of ourselves. It affects all of creation. Our sin is not without consequence, and it's not without secondary consequence as well. All of creation is impacted. And Paul, he does pick this up earlier in Romans. If you've still got your Bibles open, I'd invite you to turn to me with Romans 1. It will also be up on the screen to help us better understand exactly then what these sins are. What are the sins of humanity that then directly affect creation? In Paul, he says it this way in Romans 1, 20 to 23. And he talks about God here. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning the Gentiles, meaning all peoples, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul, seeing that creation is subjected to the sin of humanity from the very beginning, he helps us to dig down to exactly what it is that we have done what we continue to do that causes creation to cry out for release from sin, for creation, all the non-human elements, the trees, the birds, asking for a savior. And it's here in this Roman passage that Paul says that human affection, human worship has been misdirected. They've misunderstood worship. The relationship is all wrong. 
rather than worshiping the eternal God that has created all things, they turned their attentions from up to down to the things around them, focusing the attention on the desire to step outside of this right relationship, to break our covenant relationship with God, to make him less than the natural world around us, and to pursue our selfish desires of worship. For creation became the object of worship rather than a partner in worshiping the one true God. We twisted the way that we were to interact with the natural world rather than living together in that harmony and that flourishing that we talked about last week. They became objects of worship, objects of exploitation rather than coming together to point to our one true God. And this might be part of the reason why we fail to understand the severity of our sin, why we might be surprised to think that our choices have such wide-reaching consequences. Because Paul says our minds are darkened, futile in our thinking. We are blind to the impacts of our sin. We are blind to how fractured our relationship with the natural world is. We're deaf to the groaning and crying out of creation. Our free will messed it up royally for the natural world. And we, through our choices, our pursuit of our own selfish desires, of creating our own idols, have caused the environmental degradation that we see today. Because we didn't think that our choices could have such a wide-ranging impact, that our own personal sin, these are just the things that I do for myself, could stretch so far and be so devastating. And that's a problem. It's a big, global, cosmic problem that we do not have the capacity to address ourselves. Which is why it is so good and so great and so fantastic that God saw all that we were messing up down here, frustrating the flourishing of creation, and he sent Jesus to rescue us, to rescue all of creation. So we have a problem, but we also know the solution. And the solution is far bigger than the problem. And so I'd like to invite you to turn then in your uh, Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which we have read from this morning. And this will be our jumping off point into understanding the solution, understanding exactly how Christ impacts creation's liberation from this bondage of sin. And we're going to do this uh, through three points, because I'm still super CRC. And so we're going to talk about it, and I love this Colossians passage because it reiterates all things time and time again. The Greek word panta, right, where we get to the, the prefix pan to mean everything, right? You might think of, you know, we're a monotheistic religion, meaning one God, but there are pantheistic, which means many or all gods extending out there. And so Paul talks about Christ in this context, and he says it is about all things. And this is a, a sentiment that means a whole lot to me as a, a graduate of McMaster University. I got to participate in the, uh, the student ministry that's run by the CRC chaplain there, Michael Fallon, who calls his ministry all things, which comes from the motto of McMaster, which comes from this very passage, that all things cohere in Christ, which is appropriate for a university where there's a wide range of studies in all disciplines to recognize that everything that goes on at that institution finds its coherence, finds its origin 
and it's binding together in Christ. And we have to take this literally. When Paul says all things, we have to take it literally to mean all things. So when you step outside the church doors and you think about what it means to all things, everything that you can put your eyes on, everything you can touch and hear and smell, all of those things find their meaning and ultimate significance in Jesus Christ. Nothing is outside of his scope. Because Jesus Christ is supreme. Because Paul, in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 1, 15 to 20, he goes through the entire biblical story in short order. Because in verse 16, he goes all the way back to Genesis, and he says, for in him, this is Jesus Christ, in him all things were created, things on heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, panta, have been created through him and for him. For just as God created and values the whole earth, something we explored in depth last week, that he cares so deeply about everything that he has created, Paul attributes that same sentiment to Jesus because Jesus was present at creation. It was through Jesus that all things found their being, and he cares for them just as deeply as God does throughout Scripture. Jesus has just as much of an interest and an investment in the natural world as God does. Jesus cares that it was very good and wants to see it very good again. He cares about the trajectory of the natural world. And in that it stands to reason that Jesus is the only one capable of exercising proper and supreme authority over the natural world. I mean, he created it after all. Who else could we look to to restore our world to a place of good relationship, if not Jesus? Try as we might, we will always still exist in conflict because we are not that powerful. As much as we might delude ourselves thinking that science and technology will get us out of any problem we find, these are good things. Science and technology are under that umbrella of all things, but they have to find their meaning in Jesus who is supreme. Which brings us to reconciliation. Because if the very goodness of creation is defined by relationship, and if sin is, the def is defined by the breaking of relationship, then we need reconciliation. This comes up in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.20. For through him, this is Jesus again, through him to reconcile to himself all things. The first work of Jesus is to reconcile all of creation back to himself. Because human sin is so volatile, we have separated creation from God through the chasm of our sin by twisting it, manipulating it, and abusing it. Creation has been separated from God because of us. So one of Christ's first work in restoring that relationship between God, us, and creation is to bring all things back to him. It is cosmic in scope. And I also invite you to turn back really quickly in your, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 19. But this is also a really important passage that talks about reconciliation, where Paul writes and he says that about Jesus, and he says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And while reconciliation as a word does not come up a whole lot in Scripture, the sentiment that it carries can be seen throughout its pages. Because reconciliation, it's not just about an absence of conflict. 
For the word carries this sense of establishing peace between warring parties. And it's not just about abating the conflict, but a restoration of good and flourishing relationship. This goes beyond just a simple ceasefire, but it goes towards sitting down and breaking bread together with your once enemy. Christ's work in that sense is not just about stopping environmental degradation, stopping the abuse and frustration, but about restoring good relationship between us and the natural world, allowing us to live together, to lift each other up and share and worship together with God, to be at peace with the natural world. And so all of this, with Jesus as supreme, with reconciliation being fostered between us and all of the natural world, it points us in a trajectory of a new creation. And we're going to stay here and then in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about what that means, how reconciliation gets us to a new creation. Because Paul writes in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And now for those of you at All Ontario Youth Convention, this passage made up a large part of our last session. And I'm not going to disagree with our speaker, but I'm going to say she didn't go far enough. Because one of the problems with reading this passage is we might think that Paul is speaking just about persons, about we as being a new creation, which is certainly an aspect of it. But when Paul typically talks about the Christian being reborn, becoming a new person, renewed, restored in Christ, he uses different words. He talks about putting on a new self, putting away that old self. But here in this passage, because he has chosen to use the word creation, it is very intentional. Because Paul is nothing if not consistent for the most part there. And as we saw in Romans, when Paul talks about creation— he includes that non-human elements. And so as he looks at the reconciling ministry of Christ, he's not just thinking about the new believer that has been born again and is made new on the inside. He thinks and he says that if anyone is in Christ, that if we as the church embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior and live into a life as him, it is ushering in a new creation, a restoration of all things. Paul is anticipating a cosmic transformation of all the world because of Jesus' ministry. It is not just about you and me. Jesus going to the cross was not just about people. It was about all things. Because this has always been God's intention. This has always been the purpose right from the very beginning, to send Jesus into the world. Because God knew how deep the effects of sin had marred the world, how deep the relationship had been corrupted between us and creation and God, and how much we needed a Savior. And Jesus was very aware of this throughout his ministry. And the writers of the New Testament are very aware of this as they communicate to the church that nothing Nothing was left untouched by sin in our world. But the very good news is that nothing is left untouched by the ministry of Jesus, by his reconciliation. And so I want to invite you this week to ask God to show you what this means for our relationship with each other, with him, but also with the natural world.
to go outside again this week. And now that we're getting warmer weather, it's a little bit easier to enjoy the good things of creation. But to sit, to listen, to listen to the voice of creation, to hear where it is crying out for restoration, to look out into your neighborhood, into your local watershed, to see exactly where Christ's ministry needs to be keenly felt and keenly seen. We have plenty of uh, professors in our congregation that could point you in the right direction. And so I want to invite you to consider yourself as sharing in this ministry of reconciliation with creation. That creation is not an object of our endeavors, but it is a partner. It is a fellow brother and sister, just as much in need of reconciliation, just as deserving of Christ's sacrifice. And bring that good news and that gospel message to the birds, the bees, the apple blossom trees, and to ask God to show you how we might learn more about him through the way that Jesus has brought all things together, how all things cohere in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we step outside the doors on this sunny Sunday morning, feel that cool spring breeze, smell the spring flowers and the buds that are beginning to bloom, we would ask that we would not look around and only see the brokenness and sin that exists in creation, but that we would see that beauty. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times where we have thought that your gospel is all about us, or we have thought that the only reason Jesus came was to save us and our souls. But we know that this earth matters to you, that in the end heaven comes down here and that you dwell on this earth that you created that you have never abandoned. Reshape our thinking to see the broad reach of your son's sacrifice. It's too big for us to fully fathom, and so I just ask that you give us a little peace this week, a little peace next week, and let that small piece each and every week encourage us to think deeper about our relationship with you, with each other, and the natural world that we live in, that we inhabit, and that we may understand how all things find their meaning and significance through the blood of your Son on the cross. Amen.